In the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Welcome to Let Us Attend number six. If we could just start off by going to page 183, we'll just recap some of the things that we said last week. One eighty-three. So remember, last week we we started from the point right after the creed. So it's, it was called the prayer of reconciliation. We, um, the priest starts off by recalling the reconciliation between us and God, and then reconciliation between each other. And we record the verse in the Gospel of Saint Matthew, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Christ says that if you're going to offer your gift and you remember that you have an issue with your brother, leave your gift, go make up with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Hence, we have the call to greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay? On page 183, the deacon, in his call to us to greet one another with a holy kiss, tells us a few other things to do. He tells us to stand with trembling and look towards the east. And if you look at page 260, which is a longer version of that command by the deacon... 260, which is a longer version, he gives us more instructions. Let us stand well, let us stand reverently, let us stand earnestly, let us stand in peace, let us stand in, in the fear of God, trembling and stunned, look toward the east, let us attend. So obviously something significant is just about to happen. If all these instructions were given, something's just about to happen, which is really, really important. Especially the instruction, let us attend, which happens a few times during the liturgy. The first time we saw it was before the creed. So let us attend means let's be attentive, let us be focused before the creed. And then now, leading into the anaphora. So we are on page 184 today. So this part of the liturgy is the beginning of the anaphora. Anaphora means to offer up, or the lifting up, and you'll see why. Um, in a second. Some people say that it's the beginning of what's known as the liturgy proper. The core of the liturgy starts here. So everything has been leading up to this point. We started with the readings, we, we confessed our faith, we greeted one another with a holy kiss, we're all, in, like, we're all in peace with each other, the deacon has instructed us to be focused and alert, and then something's just about to happen. So let's read. The priest begins with the um, prayer, the Lord be with you all, and crosses the congregation, the people respond, and with your spirit. He then has two commands which he gives us, and it's not really common for us to hear the priest give us a command. Who usually gives us things to do? Deacon, stand up for prayer, um, let us attend, look towards the east, stand up to hear the Holy Gospel, let us pray, pray that God may Pray for the peace of the church. Pray for the salvation of the world. Let those who read recite. The deacon always gives us things to say. The priest always starts the prayer by saying, which means pray or let us pray. But it's not really common for the priest to give us specific instructions. But here he does, which outlines the importance of this section. The priest then commands us to lift up our hearts. And we reply, we have them, our hearts, with the Lord. And then he commands us to give thanks to the Lord. He says, let us give thanks to the Lord. 
And we reply and say, it is meet and right, or in the old translation, it is right and worthy. That dialogue is really, really important. And you'll find it in all the apostolic churches. I read something about that, and it connects to um, the earlier response where the priest says, let us pray, stand up for prayer, peace be with you all and with your spirit. It's like, I'm trying to remember what the response was saying, but from memory it was saying like, with the core of our being that interacts with God, with our spirit. So it's like he's saying, and with your spirit, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. But of course by that we also mean and with, with your whole being. But the spirit being the core of our being. From memory, that's, that's what I remember. But um, Fatin would even tell us in the Antiochian Orthodox Church, they have the same dialogue, except instead of the Lord be with you, it's the love of God the Father, the grace of His only begotten Son, and the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you, or similar, as we say in the Liturgy of St. Gregory. Um, the Lord be with you. Okay. In St. John Chrysostom, do you say the, the, the love of God the Father? Okay. All right. I thought it was, but it's okay. Um, but I'm pretty sure in one of the other liturgies, they, they do say that, but we say that in the, in the liturgy of St. Gregory. But in the liturgy of St. Basil, St. Cyril, we say the Lord be with you all. So if we look at our quote sheet, 2 Thessalonians, St. Paul says, Now many, the Lord of peace... Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Okay. And he also says in Colossians 3, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Just backtrack for a sec. So Fatin's got the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom here from the Eastern Orthodox Church. The priest says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And everyone replies, and with your spirit. The priest then says, let our hearts be on high. They reply, we have them with the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord. And the people reply, it is right and fitting to worship Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity, one in essence, one in being. So that dialogue is really, we have that in common with the apostolic churches. Okay. So if you remember last week, we went through the sermon of St. Cyril of Jerusalem. So remember we said this is 4th century Jerusalem. Before there was such thing as the Catholic Church, the Protestants, um, the Orthodox Church, etc. It was just the church. This is 4th century. And remember we said that if someone was coming to get baptized, they would spend all of Lent learning about the faith. They would then get baptized, and then after they were baptized and had communion, St. Cyril explained to them what happens in the liturgy. And we connected that with the verse, taste and see. So in, in the Orthodox understanding, you taste things, and then they're explained to you. Okay? We experience. So his sermon gives us a really good outline of what the liturgy looked like in the 4th century. So let's have a read. He says, Then the priest cries... Lift up your hearts, for truly it is necessary at that most awesome hour to have one's heart on high towards God and not below, occupied with earth and the, thing, and the things of earth. So this is 4th century, we see that it's still happening all the way back there, which shows how ancient our liturgy is. Okay? 
Now, I've underlined some parts here. Remember last week, we spoke about liturgy after liturgy, which means when the priest says, go in peace, you're going out to carry on what you've just learned and what you've just experienced. Let's look at what St. Cyril says in the underlined part. Commenting on the command, lift up your hearts, he says, in effect then, the priest commands everyone at that hour, at that very hour, to banish worldly thoughts and workaday cares and to have their hearts in heaven towards the God who loves mankind. So because the priest told us to lift up our hearts in the liturgy, ideally our hearts should be with God all the time. So this is reorienting our focus. So I come to the liturgy, the priest says, lift up your hearts. I walk out, I try to keep my heart lifted up to God. And then he keeps going. Then assenting to this by your confession, you answer, we have lifted them up to the Lord. He says, let no one present be so disposed that while his lips say, we have lifted them up to the Lord, in his mind, his attention is engaged with worldly thoughts. In other words, don't lie. If the priest says, the Lord be with you, or lift up your heart and say, they are with the Lord, he's trying to say, that, well, they better be with the Lord, because you've just said that. Then he says something nice again in the underlying part. He goes, at all times we should be mindful of God. So our minds should be with the Lord and our hearts should be with the Lord all the time. But at least if this is not possible due to human frailty, we must strive for it at that hour. So we're human, we can't do it all the time, let's come to the liturgy and really try to have our hearts with the Lord. So those, that dialogue there is really important because when we're in church, our minds, our hearts should be focused purely on Christ. You know, in um, the Coptic Church, and I think the Ethiopian Church, the Eritrean Church as well, we take off our shoes before entering the sanctuary. Like Moses, when he took off his sandals before he approached the burning bush. St. Gregory says that sandals were made out of leather. Leather is a dead product, which reminds us of things of the world, the dead things. So when Moses was asked to take off his sandals, it's like you're approaching God Get rid of all the worldly things that you're thinking about that you're tied up with. Same thing with us. When we approach the liturgy, we take off our shoes sometimes literally to enter the sanctuary or literally to have communion. But also spiritually, we should take off our shoes when we enter church so that everything that's not Christ-focused should be just left at the door. Okay? Or left on the altar. We spoke about this before, writing things on papers or in prayer, we just leave it on the altar and our minds are focused on Christ. The, the thing I don't get then is, why say when we go to you know, St. Mary for Sunday Mass, we only take our shoes off just before the communion, but if say we go to the monastery, we take our shoes off from the very start of the Mass, why is there a... Yeah, that's a good point. At monasteries, usually you take off your shoes outside of the church. I think, I heard once that we used to always take them off outside the church, but because of practical reasons, it's only done for communion. That, that, that's one thing I've heard. But you're right, in monasteries you always find that they take it off from the door of the church. So this dialogue here really reminds us that our minds should be focused on Christ. Like we said last week, which means our phones should ideally be off or in flight mode. We should be standing in a place where we could really focus on the prayer. Okay? Then we keep going. This is 4th century, St. Cyril of Jerusalem. Then the priest says, Let us give thanks to the Lord. Indeed, we ought to give thanks to the Lord for calling us when we were unworthy to so great a grace, for reconciling us when we were enemies, and for granting us the spirit of adoption. So if we look at it 
in Greek in our liturgy book, the priest says, What does that first word sound like? Eucharist. What does Eucharist mean? Thanksgiving. Okay? So the priest is saying, let us give thanks to the Lord. In other words, let us Eucharist. What do we call the liturgy sometimes? The Eucharist. What do we call communion? The Eucharist. So the priest is saying, let us Eucharist. What do you reply? It is made and right. In other words, let's go. Go for it. So the priest is calling us to the Eucharist and you're giving him permission to keep going. Let us Eucharist and you're like, go ahead. And then he does go ahead. He goes, okay. Meet and right, meet and right. Truly indeed, it is meet and right. And he starts the whole Thanksgiving service. What does he thank God about? His creation, as we could see. The heavenly powers. We'll keep going. The incarnation. The Eucharist. And then all those litanies that we pray, the peace of the world, the bishops, the priests, the safety of the world, the departed, all that, that's all the service of thanksgiving. So the priest is pretty much saying, let us Eucharist, and we're replying, okay, go ahead. Let's keep reading. Then you say, it is fitting and right. In giving thanks, we do indeed a fitting and right act, but he did not a right act, but one which went beyond justice by his kindness counting us worthy of such marvellous blessings. Okay? After that, the priest, after the priest says, let us give thanks to the Lord, and the congregation says, it is right and worthy, or it is made and right, it's like saying, yes, you're right. We should give thanks to the Lord. It is befitting. The priest then does that. He says, page 184, meet and right, meet and right, truly indeed it is meet and right. O you, the being, Master, Lord, God of truth. So he's addressing the Father, like we said last week. Being before the ages and reigning forever, who dwells in the highest and looks upon the lowly, who has created the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is therein, the Father of our Lord God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. By whom, this whom is Jesus Christ. So he goes, the Father of our Lord, God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, by whom you have created all things, visible and invisible, who is seated upon the throne of his glory and who is worshipped by all the holy powers. The deacon asks us to stand. You who are seated, stand. Then the priest says, Before whom stand the angels, the archangels, the principalities, the authorities, the thrones, the dominions and the powers. Look towards the east. You are he around whom stand the cherubim full of eyes and the seraphim with six wings praising continuously without ceasing saying. Okay, after we've just read that, let's keep reading St. Cyril of Jerusalem. After that, we call to mind the heavens, the earth and the sea, the sun and moon, the stars, the whole rational and irrational creation, both visible and invisible, angels and archangels, virtues, dominions, principalities, powers, thrones, the many-faced cherubim saying, in effect, the Vedic text, O magnify the Lord with me, Psalm 33. We call to mind also the seraphim whom Isaiah in the Holy Spirit saw encircling the throne of God with two wings veiling their faces and with two their feet while flying with two and saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord of hosts. We recite this doxology which comes to us from the seraphim that we may be sharers of the hymnody of the heavenly hosts. What century is this? Fourth century. It's exactly what we're still doing right now. This is before any major church split. We split from, there was a first schism, Chalcedon, 
451 AD. This is 4th century, okay, before the split. So this is St. Cyril of Jerusalem. Very nice contemplation on what that dialogue is, okay? Let's look from Bishop Mateus, current bishop of a Surian monastery. He says, We must put our minds and hearts in the words and the meaning of the response, which is, they are with the Lord, because if we utter it and our hearts are not uplifted and our minds are not focused on praying them, we are lying to the priest and at the same time being dishonest to God. Uh, guys just came into the handouts are at the back over there. Okay? So Amma Mateus is reminding us that when we say our hearts are with the Lord, they actually really need to be with the Lord, we shouldn't be lying. And he uses scary words. We are lying to the priest and at the same time being dishonest to God. If anyone here remembers early 2000s when phones became popular, they had all these signs around the churches. God doesn't want to communicate with you on your phone. And they had a sign through it. And at the bottom it says, when you say lift up your hearts, you have to mean it. I don't know if you remember those signs. They used to be at St. George's Church. But this is sort of the attitude that we're having. When we say they are with the Lord, we actually mean our hearts are with Christ. Father Tadros Molesi, commenting, he says... Then he cries, lift up your hearts. That is, let us be heavenly minded, not earthly minded. The people give their consent and say that their hearts are lifted up to heaven where their treasure is. That is Jesus Christ. We have followed him in his ascension because he has accepted us at his table in his kingdom. We have entered the world to come and are now standing beyond time and space. It is because all this has happened to us that something will happen to the bread and wine. Now that our hearts are in heaven in Christ, nothing remains but to give thanks to God. The celebrant says, let us give thanks unto the Lord. And the faithful give their consent, saying, it is worthy and right. The Eucharist is an anaphora, that is the lifting up of our offering, our hearts and ourselves through our head, Jesus Christ, for without him we would have laid prostrate on the ground. Abuna Tadros also says that in the liturgy, we don't know. Are we raised to heaven, or is heaven come down to earth? Now, this isn't symbolic. We don't say, uh, it's as if we're in heaven. No, we literally believe in the Orthodox Church that in the liturgy, we are in heaven. How? We don't know. It's, everything's a mystery, but it's not symbolic. We literally believe that we're in heaven. Hence, all those instructions that the deacon gave us before. Stand reverently, stand with compunction, stand stunned which is the most interesting one, stand in awe, etc. So technically you, you are in heaven only just as a liturgy runs or just if you're in, within the church? So we say that during the liturgy specifically, we're in heaven. That um, reminds me of the ritual that like when we chant the Cherubic Hymn, it's as if we are the angels, we meant to stand with the angels and like we're praising God in front of us. And that's a good point, because remember we said in letters to 10, number 3, when the priest offers incense in a cross at the front, he says to the Virgin Mary, Hail to her, uh, we send unto you greetings with Gabriel the angel saying, Hail to her full of grace, the Lord is with you. Then he looks at the people and says, Hail to the choir of the angels, Hail to my fathers and masters, the apostles, the martyrs and all the saints, while looking at the people, because we believe that the church is literally full of the angels and the saints. I'm sure... You've heard the nice story of Pope Kronos where he sent a priest to pray at a, at a small church in some village. So the priest went and there was this one old deacon in the whole Vespers. 
And he was really annoyed, the priest. He's like, why did I get sent this whole way just to pray Vespers and there's only one deacon here who doesn't know what he's doing. So he came back a bit disgruntled. And um, he, he said something to Pope Krollos and Pope was like, oh, go again, don't worry, go again. And then this time when he turned around to say that part, he says he saw the church packed to the brim with saints and angels and Pope Krollos was sitting in the church there with them. So we literally believe that we're in heaven. The peace of the world, order. yeah. Why don't we pray more for like inner peace or to become to have the qualities that will lead us to heaven? We sort of pray for both. So if you look at the litany for the sick, we're not only praying for the health of our bodies, but also for our souls and our spirits. In all the litanies, we have that reference, but at the same time, we do live in the world. And we have prayers for everyone. So part of us living in the world and part of us being in heaven is why we're in heaven we're praying to God for everything. We're like, please God, remember the peace of the church. Please God, remember our leaders in the church, the bishops, the priests, the patriarch. Please God, remember what we do in the world, farming, for example. So the, the air of the heaven, the fruits of the earth. We are still living in the world and we're still praying to God for all of that. So it's, it's not sort of one or the other, but it is still both. But the thing is, we're praying for these things after our hearts are with the Lord. So our eyes are focused on God and we're praying for these things. And like we were saying, when we enter church, we leave all these worldly things on the altar or somewhere else. We focus on Christ. These things might not necessarily change. So these situations we might walk out, they might be the same. But what might happen is I might change. So that's the change that we want. We want for me to change. If the situation changes or not, we can't control that. But what we can do is put our lives in God's hands and ask Him to change us. So that when we walk out, these situations aren't as burdensome as they were before. Okay? Cool. So the word Eucharist, we said, means thanksgiving. This quote from R Rudolf Yani from the Coptic Church Review, he says, The term Eucharist was used by the early fathers in three ways. Firstly, to denote either the whole liturgical service, so the whole service was known as Eucharist, Number two, the thanksgiving, which is the thanksgiving prayer we do at the beginning, or more specifically, this prayer here. And number three, the consecrated elements, the body and the blood of Christ. That's what we mean by the word Eucharist. Okay? So we'll talk about thanksgiving and the Eucharist in a second because that's a very, very important part of the liturgy. I forgot to mention one more story. Russian Orthodox Church, okay? I think hundreds of millions of faithful about a thousand years ago, they were sent, um, I think by the prince, I can't remember his rank. People were sent around Europe to find the true faith. They went to Germany, apparently, and they walked into the temple of a pagan temple, and they found that the way that the people there were conducting themselves didn't really lend to this being a true religion. They mentioned things such as they didn't have their belts tied up, which apparently must have been a big deal back then. Or, and they looked sorrowful, etc. But then they walked into Constantinople, so an Orthodox country, or Orthodox city. And they said that when we walked into the liturgy, we didn't know if we were in heaven or on earth. And that's how we knew that this is the true faith. 
So this is the mystery that we have in the liturgy. If I walk in and I, and I put myself in God's hands internally in my repentance and my humility and physically by all those instructions that the deacon gave us, we stand in front of God and I don't know if I'm in heaven or on earth. I don't know if heaven came down or if earth was raised up to heaven. But what we do believe is that we are literally in heaven, not symbolically. Okay? A quote by Father Athanasius Iskander. Now that our hearts are raised up high to the Lord, the priest tells us that it is time to start the Eucharist. So he goes, let us give thanks. Let us Eucharist. The word Eucharist means giving thanks, so the priest invites us to start this thanksgiving. The people respond, it is meet and right. And by saying so, they are giving their approval to start the Eucharist or thanksgiving. Remember we said liturgy is the work of the people, not the work of the priest. So we all pray the liturgy together. St. John Chrysostom explains this partnership of people and priests in offering thanks to God by saying, the offerings of the thanksgiving is in common, for the priest does not give thanks alone, but all the people as well, for having received their assent only after they agree that it is fitting and right to do so, does he begin the thanksgiving. So he needs the people to reply and go, yes, let us give thanks to the Lord, and you say it is right and worthy. Father Lev Gillet, which we had a few quotes from him in the last few weeks, he says about this part of the liturgy, we now enter into the central prayer of the liturgy, into the great act of gratitude and offering of which the consecration of bread and wine constitutes the essential element. This is properly, properly termed the Eucharist. The Eucharist means thanksgiving. And he quotes a part which is in the Eastern Orthodox liturgy but which we have in the liturgy of St. Cyril from memory. It is meet and right to him thee, bless thee, praise thee, etc. He who sings, blesses and praises with a sincere heart assumes an inner attitude of thanksgiving. He is in a spiritual state that can be spoken of as Eucharist. He progresses in his life, singing with joy and confidence. He has abandoned himself to a happiness that envelopes and surpasses him. For what do we express our gratitude to God in the great prayer of thanksgiving? We thank him for all things. We remember before him everything he has done on our behalf. So in the Coptic liturgy we speak of creation, creation of the heavenly powers, and then after he says, who formed us, created us, and placed us in the paradise of joy, so we thank him for creating us. Then he goes, was incarnate, we thank him for the incarnation. He rose from the dead, we thank him. And then he speaks about, he took bread, he broke, he tasted, and the lid in his, we thank God for everything. He has raised us up after the fall, he bears us tirelessly into his coming kingdom, we give thanks for all the good things which we know and which we know not, and for the abundant goodness which he pours out upon us each day in an infinite variety of ways. So remember in the Thanksgiving prayer at the beginning of the liturgy, we say we thank you for every condition concerning every condition and in every condition. We thank God for everything. And this whole service could be called Eucharist. Or we could refer to the Thanksgiving prayer or it could refer to the precious body and blood of Christ. Okay? A few more things about thanksgiving before we talk about another part of that prayer. Father Alexander Schmemann commenting on the call to lift up our hearts. 
Thus, when we hear this ultimate summons, let us ask ourselves, are our hearts turned to the Lord? Is the ultimate treasure of our heart in God in heaven, of our heart in God in heaven? If so, then in spite of all our weaknesses, all our fallenness, we have been received into heaven. We behold now the light and the glory of the kingdom. If not, the sacrament of the coming of the Lord to those who love him shall be for us the sacrament of the coming judgment. Again, heavy words. When the priest says, lift up your hearts, our hearts should be with the Lord like we actually say. So can you imagine if the whole church had its heart with the Lord and someone who's never walked into church before just walks in, what's he or she going to see? What are they going to say is happening? Because if we say all these things and then someone walks into the liturgy and says, these guys say that the liturgy is heaven on earth, but look at how they're sitting or standing. Or look at the deacons, they're just walking in and out. They're just all over. Like, we have to be reasonable and say, if we really believe this, then our behavior should show it. Then he comments on the dialogue, let us give thanks to the Lord, it is meet and right. He says, these words are the beginning of the traditional Hebrew prayer of thanksgiving. And the Lord doubtlessly uttered them when he began. With this prayer, his own new thanksgiving, which was necessary to bring man to God and save the world. And likewise, the apostles, no doubt, answered with the prescribed, it is meet and right. The church from the first day of her existence has named not only this prayer itself, but also the entire liturgy with one word. This word is Eucharist, thanksgiving. Thus, with the word Eucharist, the church has named and still calls the offering of the gifts, the prayer, the consecration, and the partaking of them by the faithful. If you look at the Gospel of St. Luke, in the Last Supper account, it says he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke, and then he gave it to his disciples. What do you do in the liturgy? The priest takes bread from the basket, he gives thanks, either at the Thanksgiving prayer or right here, he breaks in the fraction, and what then does he do? He gives communion. So we copy exactly what Christ did in that order. Then Father Alexander speaks a little bit about Thanksgiving, which we'll just read. Thanksgiving is the experience of paradise. We were created in paradise and for paradise. We were exiled from paradise and Christ leads us again into paradise. Thanksgiving is the sign, or better still, the presence, joy, fullness of knowledge of God. That is, knowledge as meeting, knowledge as communion, knowledge as unity. Just as it is impossible to know God and not give him thanks, so it is impossible to give him thanks without knowing him. So if we actually know God and what he did for us, we have two reactions, thanksgiving and praise. And if you look at the liturgy, what do we do? Thanksgiving and praise. How many times do we say, glory be? Glory to you, O Lord. Glory to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, etc. If we really know what God did for us, our natural reaction is to say thank you and to praise him. Knowing God transforms our life into thanksgiving, and thanksgiving transforms eternity into life everlasting. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, <clears throat> bless his holy name. This is nice. If the entire life of the church is above all one continuous burst of praise, blessing, and thanksgiving, if this thanksgiving is raised up both out of joy and out of sorrow, out of the depths of both happiness and misfortune, 
out of both life and death if the most bitter graveside lamentation is transformed by it into a song of praise, Alleluia, then it is because the church is the meeting with God which has been accomplished in Christ. So the Christian life is one of a continuous burst of praise, blessing, thanksgiving, joy. It's not a sad religion. We're not walking around sad all the time. Sure, I'm sad for my sins, but if I stop there, then I don't really believe in God's work for us. I have to be sad for my sins, but then that sorrow needs to turn into joy when I focus on Christ and I come back to Him. Repentance literally means to change heart, change of mind, change of heart. So if I'm walking this way, which is sin, I stop, I realize what I'm doing, so I'm upset, I then turn around back to Christ, He's received me, I'm joyful. And that's what the liturgy is. It's a celebration of joy. Okay? All right. I won't read the next quote. You could read that later. It just talks about references for principalities, thrones, etc. Last thing I want to talk about today is I want to use the sentence who has created the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is therein as an excuse to talk about our understanding of creation. So we believe... Sorry. A really quick question. You know yeah. how you were saying that... I mean, the part of Mass is to, you know, celebrate Christ and have joy and all that. If, say, it was a Good Friday Mass, for example, because obviously, you know, God's been um, crucified, would the, would the Mass run any differently in, in that sense? Would you, would you still have to kind of, you know, have joy for Christ even though he's been... So we don't actually have a liturgy on Good Friday itself. We have one on Thursday and then Saturday. Yeah, We, we take off a, a, in, on a Holy Thursday. We don't pray the prayer of reconciliation um, and we don't greet one another with a holy kiss like we were saying last week. Regardless, although we are sorrowful for what Christ has suffered for us, we are still joyful for his love and for his incarnation and for taking us from death to life. So still our eyes are focused on the joy and that's why... We, when we look at, um, if you look at uh, the resurrection liturgy, it's full of joy. But we never have a sorrowful liturgy. We never have any sorrowful tune in the liturgy itself. We have sorrowful, half sorrowful, half joyful agios on bright Saturday. But apart from that, we never have a, a, a sorrowful tuned liturgy. But we do have sorrowful tunes for used in Passion Week, but not in the liturgy itself. But still, we, we still view all these things in the lens of joy and love. So I want to talk about creation, and we explain it as create, like the church explains it as creation, ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. So we believe that God created everything out of nothing, and this is important for us as Christians, and for a few reasons which we'll see. It's a little bit long, but it explains everything, so we'll just read it. The beginning of the creed clearly affirms that the church from the early centuries sees God the Father as creator of everything, both visible and invisible. So we say we believe in one God, God the Father, the Pantocrator, creator of heaven and earth. So we start off with that. The church has also held that belief that all creation came to be out of nothing, ex nihilo, which means that God didn't just have stuff there and this stuff had to be used for something, so then he created the world. He created everything completely out of nothing. And that's very important and we'll see why. 
Although this teaching is not explicitly articulated in the biblical text, it is implicitly implied. Second Maccabees, one of the deuterocanonical books, which is part of the orthodox canon of the Bible, okay, emphasizes this point where a mother comforts her son facing martyrdom by saying, so 2 Maccabees 7.28, I beseech you, my child, to look at heaven and earth and see everything in them and know that God made them out of nothing. So also he made the race of man in this way. St. Paul in his epistle to the Hebrews says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. These two passages provide solid biblical support for the church's teaching of creation ex nihilo or out of nothing. So the, all Christian churches believe in this. So if you type in ex nihilo, it will come up. From this we can also see that the act of creation was not carried out using pre-existing matter. question is, why do we care? We'll find out. St. Athanasius articulates that to suggest that God needed pre-existing matter to make anything, so he needed stuff to be there and use that stuff to make us, is to impute weakness to God. It's to say that God is weak. He needs something there to be, to trigger it, to say, oh, there's stuff there, I need to do something with it, or I need that stuff to be able to create, which we don't believe. St. Athanasius emphasized that God himself is the cause of matter and created all things out of nothing. The fact that God created the world and everything visible and invisible out of nothing shows that creation is an act of complete divine freedom, a free, gracious act of... Sorry? Gratuitous act of God. Tongue twister for me, okay? So the fact that God created us out of nothing shows that it was a free act completely out of love. Because if there was stuff there, then we could say, oh, he had to do something with it, or that stuff was just sitting there to be used, so then he made us. No, he made us out of nothing. He made the whole world out of nothing. He not only made the whole world out of nothing, he made the whole world beautiful out of nothing. So do you ever ask yourselves, why do flowers smell nice? Why does the ocean look good when you look at it? Why, is, why when we look at nature do we go, well? Why didn't God just create everything functional? Just to do its purpose but without beauty. Well, this tells us something about what the purpose of creation is and why we were created. And we'll get to that. God did not create the world to order pre-existing matter or to satisfy his own need. In the liturgy of St. Gregory, we say, you weren't in need of our servitude, but we were in need of your lordship. God didn't create us to put something that existed in order because nothing existed. He created us out of nothing. And he didn't create us to satisfy his own need, but as an act of free will, goodness and love. He created it without compulsion, without being forced in order that it might enjoy his blessings and share in his goodness. By creating the world out of nothing, the resulting subject, so us and creation, is entirely other, infinitely removed from him, not by place, but by nature. So we can't say that we are like God. We are other than God. And, that, and the fact that he created us out of nothing shows that. Following from this, we can begin to understand its implication on how we, as humans, are to view creation. Apart from outlining the greatness and grandeur of God, 
The Genesis account is also interested in the sacredness of the entire created world. Man's origin from soil and his role in the naming of creation as a call for humankind to recognize the unique and sacred nature of each creature, which means that as Christians, we are greenies. Okay, we care about the environment. We are called to take care of the environment. We are stewards of God's creation. And the fact that he made it beautiful means that he made it out of love for us to enjoy. He could have made everything functional and without beauty. Flowers could have done their purpose without smell if you wanted to. Or if you wanted to have a smell, they don't have to smell as nice as they do. He could have figured out a way just to give things function. So if you ever, like, if you ever go for a walk somewhere in a forest and you see it's, be- it's all beautiful, he didn't have to be like that. That shows that it was a complete act of free will from God, freedom from God, a complete act of love and humility on his part. There are many biblical references, particularly in the Psalms, which all allude to the sacredness of creation. Psalm 148, for instance, outlines the praise that is offered to the Lord from the heavens, angels, moon, stars, creatures, land, trees, and people, as if to allude that all creation is involved in a liturgical act of worship and praise to the Creator. One who destroys the world is guilty of sin against the inherent divine rationality of creation. So we are called, as Christians, to take care of creation. So when I come to the liturgy and I hear everything about creation and how God did it for us out of love, when I leave the liturgy, I should view creation with new eyes. Remember we said greet one another with a holy kiss last week? We greet each other and then I extend that greeting to people I don't know on the street, colleagues at work, strangers, and to all of creation. Yes, Genesis 2 or 3. Yeah. What are we up to? Okay. One, uh, since the creation of the world out of nothing was a kenotic act. So kenotic comes from the word kenosis, not ketosis. Kenosis means self-emptying. He emptied himself in Philippians, St. Paul says, he emptied himself. So it was an act of self-emptying, one of love and goodness. So God emptied out of his humility, emptied himself, complete act of freedom, love and goodness, created us. He didn't have to create us. Okay? We are also called to view all creation through the same lens of love and selflessness as the sacred option, object of God's love. Since the world was created out of nothing, the Orthodox Christian tradition will claim that it was created out of God's absolute love. Love. God's motive in creation was to share his love. It is this love that causes God to go outside of himself and to create things other than himself. The principle of love is very important since it implies that the starting point of existence was not one of impersonal, logical necessity. The source is not the blind urge of an impersonal, absolute nature. So God didn't say, oh, it's logical that I'm just going to create human beings and things that look beautiful. No, it's all out of love. Rather, it is the love of a personal God who actualizes existence since he loves. In the Bible, we read that God is love. It does not tell us that God has love, that love is an attribute. The Bible assures us that what God is, is love. That the mode by which God is, is love. Since God is the true existence and life, 
the principle and source of being, then in all cases being, existence and life are inseparable from the, 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 the dynamic of love. Since the mode by which God exists is love, and from this mode springs every possibility and expression of life, therefore life must function as love in order to be actualized. Sorry, it's a long quote, but I thought it just had everything there. You could reread it again to go over any parts. But that whole big paragraph pretty much says God created everything out of nothing, and because we believe that he created everything out of nothing, we'd be, we could be 100% certain that he created it out of complete freedom and complete, complete love for us, which is a nice, very nice thing for us as human beings. So four dot points that summarize why it is important for us to know that God created everything out of nothing. Out of nothing. Firstly, it shows that God was not provoked to create so as to put order in the world. So he, there wasn't just stuff there and it's like, okay, I need to do something with that stuff to give order to it. There was nothing. Number two, shows that creation is an act of absolute freedom of God. Number three, it shows that it's an absolute, sorry, creation as an act of God's absolute love for us. And finally, it shows the absolute otherness of creator and uh, creation. Okay? Finally, and then we'll finish off a little bit earlier than usual, St. Cyril of Alexandria. Affirm that all things, both in heaven and on earth, have been constructed by him, so that thereby he should be recognized as having no natural affinity at all with creation. For the difference between creator and created is incomparable between a nature, uncreated, unadorned with the distinction of empire, possessed of divine and supermundane glory, and us who are in nature under the yoke of bondage. So God is other to us. Okay, let's stop it there. So pretty much next the deacon says, let us attend. And we sing the song of the cherubim and the seraphim. Holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your holy glory. He tells us to attend because we're about to sing the praise that is found in the book of Isaiah. Okay, which is chanted in heaven. So this whole section is the beginning of the anaphora. The dialogue, the Lord be with you, lift up your hearts, let us give thanks to the Lord, is very, very significant. We spoke about that, so please feel free to go back through that. We spoke about what thanksgiving is and why it's important. And then we used the sentence about creation to explain why, why, creation, um, why God created everything out of nothing and why, why that's very important to us. Um, just out of curiosity, can you put your hand up if at the Feast of the Nativity at your church they prayed the Liturgy of St. Gregory? Did you recognize that the priest addressed Christ directly and said, you? And if, if you look at the institution, it says, you broke, you tasted. Was the Liturgy of St. Gregory, the priest is addressing Christ. You blessed, you sanctified, you gave thanks. In the Liturgy of St. Basil and St. Cyril, we say, he broke, he tasted. So we just address the Liturgy of St. Gregory to the Son and the Liturgy of St. Basil and St. Cyril to the Father. But the whole liturgy is one act of the Holy Trinity, but we'll talk about that um, in probably two letters of tense. Okay? Glory be to God forever. Amen. If you have any questions, we'll hang out after and answer them. There's a sausage sizzle. Thanks for...
Dave and Abba for organizing. There won't be a Lettuce to Ten next week because there's the conventions, but we'll resume the, the week after that. So this is number six. Number seven will be in two weeks. Okay? Yeah, Dave's got an announcement.